Well, several years ago, I was uh, I was working in a youth group, and I was working with this teenage boy and saying um, we were talking about what it meant to be a Christian, and. Um, he says, well, I think being a Christian means I'm forgiven of my sin so that I don't have to feel guilty anymore. I think that being a Christian is being forgiven of my sin so I don't have to feel guilty anymore. Now, there's some parts of that sentence that are, have some value and there's some parts that are maybe a little bit off. He's right that to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus, means that we are forgiven the debts of our sin, the consequences of our sin. We are invited to a life free of guilt and shame because Jesus went to the cross and took that from us. He declares us righteous through faith in Him. Okay? Well, well said, teenage boy. Uh, but the student left out part of the definition, uh, and I think that many of us can forget this part at times. It's the fact that Jesus also gives us a new life to live, and a new life that begins right now. A life of trust in Jesus that calls us to a better way, a new way of living. Not so much a, a life free of the feelings of guilt, but a life in which we live differently so that we do less of the things that cause guilt. Does that make sense? So it's not just a, a, a life of feeling less guilt, but Jesus is calling us to a new kind of life to where we live in such a way where we don't do things that make us guilty as often. In fact, I would argue, this is for shock value, uh, I would argue that it would be cruel of God to completely wipe guilt away from the earth at this point in time. And that might seem like a strange statement. So let me say it more clearly. I believe the feeling of guilt can be a grace given by God. Now, if you're a visitor with us, you're thinking, what kind of church is this? The only church I know where it says anything good about guilt. Hang with me. Hang with me. Karina's just leaving right now. Okay. Okay, this is cool. Consider pain for a moment. Consider pain for a moment. I don't know many people on the face of the earth, except for like masochists or something, that would say, I enjoy living in pain all the time. Pain is not a great thing all the time, but on the other hand, it would be horrible if there was no pain in the world. For example, pain teaches us things. I can tell my kids a hundred times, you need to watch your fingers by doors and drawers, but they don't listen until that one time when Sophia pinched her finger in a drawer. And now who, who's the... <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, weird, actually. Uh, but anyway, so now Sophia is the number one teacher in the house about doors and drawers for little Stella. She, she warns her more about that stuff than Corey and I do because she's learned through pain to watch her fingers around those things. Pain can tell us something's wrong. It can be a gift. In fact, some forms of leprosy, what they do is they deaden our pain receptors on the extremities of our bodies. Noses, ears, fingers, toes. And so what happens is leprosy doesn't just make your body fall apart, but it, it deadens the pain so that you're constantly hitting yourself and eventually parts fall off. Because we don't feel pain to tell us any different, to tell us something's wrong, to tell us when to back down. Now, one of the main joys of the gospel in Jesus, of Jesus Christ is that through faith in Him, our sin is forgiven. Amen. That's awesome. And in order to experience this good news, this forgiveness of sin, we need to know that we need the gospel. 
Right? We need to know that we need this forgiveness of sin. And, and frankly, this is becoming more and more difficult in our culture. Because our culture is obsessed with everything pain-free and guilt-free. Guilt-free. If Jesus' method of absolving our guilt and shame uh, is the cross, then the world's method is to redefine what is right and wrong so that we don't have to feel guilty anymore. Just open your eyes the next time you look at a television show or a commercial or a magazine ad. There are so many guilt-free options out there, right? Uh, if you're overeating, you can find guilt-free cheesecake. I saw an ad for this the other day. The piece of cheesecake was like his as big as a dinner plate. It was all covered with these gooey toppings. But the idea is it has less calories so you can eat more of it, right? You can find guilt-free shopping where that just means that things cost less so you can still spend the same amount of money and just get more stuff. But you don't have to feel as guilty about it because you got a good deal, right? There's even guilt-free relationships. In the past 10 years, there is actually a term now, trial marriage, that has become mainstream in much of, uh, especially the West Coast and Far East Coast culture. Hey, don't feel guilty if you break the marriage bond. That was just your first marriage, just the trial marriage. See, we humans are wonderful, wonderful rationalizers. I know I am. We love to bend the rules and to redefine morality so that we can feel good about doing whatever we want to do. And all of that is fine and good unless you believe in a God who created you for a certain quality of life. And if you believe in that Creator God, then you would believe that He would know how life works best and what parameters, what parameters He would put on that life to experience fullness. And if that Creator God really loved us, wouldn't He want to maintain our integrity of having freedom of choice? He wouldn't coerce us into one path of life. But He'd, always, he'd also want to steer us gently, constantly back to that life-giving path. Like pain teaches us when something hurts, so guilt can be a gift from God to steer us back to a life-giving path in Jesus. Now, over the past several weeks, we've been studying John's Gospel, particularly chapters 14 through 17. Jesus is preparing His disciples for the time when He's going away. He's going to go to the cross, and after His resurrection, He's going to ascend to the Father. His body, the Jesus that walks around and talks around, is going away. He's getting His disciples ready for this time. And this is really appropriate for us, right? Because we live in that time. We don't get to hang out with Jesus face to face. And one of the main themes of this section of Scripture is Jesus tells them over and over again, I am going, my physical presence, but my presence will remain with you because I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit. This evening, we're going to look at a section of Scripture in John 16 that talks about one of the many functions of the Holy Spirit. And one of those functions is to gracefully bring people to the realization that we need Jesus. Would you stand with me as we read that text, please? We're going to be focusing in on John 16, verses 5 through 15. But I'm going to read 1 through 4 as well. It's a transition from last week. So, John 16, starting in verse 1. 
These things I've spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think he's offering service to God. These things they will do because they've not known the Father or me. But these things I've spoken to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to he who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. I have many more things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. But when He comes, the Spirit of truth, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own initiative, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take of Mine and will disclose it to you. And all things that the Father has are Mine. Therefore I say, He takes of Mine. And we'll disclose it to you. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for the reality behind it. Thank you for the living and active spirit of God. Who guides and directs and does so many incredibly wonderful things in the world around us. And in our very hearts. Holy Spirit, forgive us for neglecting you so often. And help us to attend to you this evening in the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Last week we finished up John 15. And in that section of scripture, Jesus has been preparing his disciples. That they're going to be persecuted. Basically he says, you're friends of mine. And because you're friends of mine, those people who hate me and are going to kill me and persecute me, they're going to be after you as well. And so he's preparing them for this time. The disciples, rightfully so, are full of doubt and sorrow. They're facing the fact that their friend and leader and teacher is going to leave them. And this tells us, or the text tells us, that they were experiencing deep grief. Their hearts, it says, were filled with sorrow. Filled with sorrow. Now, of course, we know that grief is a very real and very powerful feeling, and it has its place in the healing process. It can help us be reflective and introspective. When we lose someone or something, our grief can help us to reflect and appreciate and remember but one of the side effects of grief is that it has a way of blinding us from everything else that's going on in other people and outside of ourselves. Grief can oftentimes lead to self-absorption. So here Jesus is telling them that he's going away and nobody's really asking him about what that means for Jesus. Sure, uh, in, in chapter 13, uh, the disciples actually bluntly say, where are you going? We don't know where you're going. 
But it seems like they're more interested in how his leaving is affecting them. And nobody's asking Jesus, what does leaving mean for you? What are you going to lose? What joy is this that you're talking about when you say that you're going to go? You see how their sorrow and their grief is causing them to just pay attention to their own feelings. To how Jesus' leaving is going to affect them. So Jesus reminds them that his going away is actually going to be advantageous. He says, it's actually a good thing that I'm going away. The helper is going to come. The Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I fantasize about, hey, what if I lived 2,000 years ago? Wouldn't it be cool if I were with Jesus and walking in his footsteps and just hearing him teach and hanging out with him and, and, and being in his presence? But then I failed to remember that if a thing or a person is tied to time and space and particularity, if a person is tied to that, they will slip away into past and into memory and into history. So if I was alive 2,000 years ago and Jesus was just a natural man, at best, we could pass on some kind of relic of his. Maybe somebody would kept his tunic or something. We would have his teachings. But we wouldn't have the living Christ that we have now. Because Jesus gave himself over to death, he was able to experience resurrection and then ascension. That means going up to be with the Father. And it's to our advantage that this is the way it went down because... After that, Jesus sent us the Holy Spirit, His very presence, to be with us at all times. We've talked about this before. If, if Jesus was just here as a man all the time, you could only be where He is. If He was at Letter Street's Covenant Church, He wouldn't be at any other church right now. But because He's in Spirit, His presence is in the Holy Spirit. He can be everywhere at one time, in you, in me, across town, across the world, all at the same time. Now we've seen teachings about the Holy Spirit already in this few chapters of John's Gospel. In John 14, the Holy Spirit is promised to come and comfort the disciples. That means to be with them in strength, to strengthen them as they go through persecution, as Jesus is going to leave them. The Spirit also equips the church by giving you and I different spiritual gifts. Like our musicians that came up today, I would not be conducive to leading you in any kind of song myself. That's not my gift, uh, but I prefer this spot. And others of you have other gifts that you generously share with the rest of the congregation. The Spirit gives us these gifts to build up the church, to strengthen and to mature us in Christ. The Spirit does much with the people of the church. But now in this scripture, Jesus is telling us that the Spirit is going to also work in the lives of people outside the church, those who haven't come to call on Jesus as Lord and Savior. And this is a whole other theology lesson that we'll have to do some other time, but the Spirit is at work in all kinds of places, in the background, holding things together. But specifically, in this scripture we're focusing on tonight, the Spirit convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Just as typical as in, in John's Gospel and Jesus' teaching, there are a couple levels of meaning to this statement. And so first of all, we're going to look at the level that, that it meant to Jesus' original disciples. What did this teaching mean to them? And then we're going to look at how it applies to us today. 
So let's take the, the, the original context first. The day after Jesus gave this teaching about the Holy Spirit, he would be falsely tried in a mockery of a court and then sentenced to death by Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. Over the years following this very event, the disciples would be hunted down and most of them martyred for their faith. They would have no recourse in a court of law for the way that they were mistreated. In fact, because the disciples were first kicked out of the synagogues, they'd be seen as second-class citizens in their own Jewish communities. In the first century Mediterranean world, if you were a lower class citizen than somebody else, you could not take an upper class citizen to court. I mean, you could try. You could have a bulletproof case. You could have all the evidence in the world, but the judge, most often than not, would just throw it out. The same is true if you tried to appeal to the Romans. These early disciples were not Roman citizens. So if you try to appeal against a Roman citizen, good luck. There's no justice. No justice at all. So imagine, you're one of Jesus' disciples, you're hearing that the only advocate you've ever had, Jesus the Christ, is going to leave you, and now this spirit, whatever that means, they didn't know what it meant yet, he's saying this spirit is going to come and be with you. Now watch how important this is. What Jesus is saying is that the spirit of the living God, who of course would have higher social standing than anybody else in the Roman world or the Jewish world, this Spirit of the living God would be their advocate in God's court. And what the Spirit would do for them, even if they were falsely tried, even if they were killed, what the Spirit of God would do for them is to convict the world. Again, just to define what the world means, in John, it's talking about everyone who just doesn't believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's what he means by the world. Would convict the world of sin and the righteousness and judgment. The word convict, it's uh, eleko in the Greek, has a wider range of meaning than just convict. I mean, when I hear the word conviction in our culture, I think like a, a, a conviction in a court of law, right? Uh, it, but what this word means is to expose, to reveal the truth, to bring to light, to convince somebody of something which often leads to a conviction okay so it's exposing truth like shining light on a dark place I remember when in the Coast Guard I used to do these boardings out on the high seas and we would board these fishing boats and uh, some of the illegal fisheries uh, these guys would uh, in like halibut season or salmon season they would also take bycatch uh, steelhead or a big no-no in the commercial market you can't take steelhead so they would under the ice they'd have these fish stored and they would be all salmon and then way underneath in the ice they would bury these steelhead so of course when I was one of the junior guys guess who gets to jump in a fish bin in ice and dig down but you take your flashlight and look down into these layers and sometimes you would find steelhead or illegal fish it was by exposing things that we were able to bring a conviction and this is the work of the spirit to uncover the truth in a person's heart so, although it may seem like the world, the world had won some kind of victory over Jesus and his followers, the Spirit of God will expose the world's folly for what it is in three main areas. First, the Spirit will expose their sin. In John's Gospel, 
One of the themes of the greatest sins that keeps coming up uh, against Jesus is unbelief. Unbelief. Time and time again, Jesus heals and forgives and calms storms and multiplies food and turns water to wine and raises the dead. But people still would refuse to believe. Listen to these words from John chapter 3. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, will have eternal life. Now watch, this keeps going. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe is judged already. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be eleko, exposed. Okay? The world organizing itself around something else besides Jesus does not want to be exposed, but that's exactly what the Spirit's ministry is in this section. Exposing the sin of the world. Second, the Spirit exposes the world's misunderstanding of righteousness. Isn't that odd? In the, in the scripture we're looking at, it said that the Spirit will convict the world of sin. I get that. And convict the world of judgment. I, I get that. But convict the world of righteousness. That's kind of weird. Righteousness in scripture is always a good thing. We're supposed to seek after righteousness. And God is righteous. So... What is this talking about that the Spirit's going to convict the world of righteousness? Well, here's the ironic thing. The people who killed Jesus thought they were doing it for God. The people who killed the disciples thought they were doing it for God. You remember the Apostle Paul, before he became a Christian, persecuted Christians because he thought he was doing it for God. God gave people the law to help lead people to himself. And no person could perfectly, perfectly keep the law. So, groups of religious elite decided they would keep it as best they could. And there was a pecking order. Whoever kept it better than the others were more righteous, seen as closer to God. This is nothing new. In fact, in the scripture that Karina read earlier, Isaiah 64, it says that all Israel's attempts, and you can just plug in your name for Israel too, all of our attempts at righteousness without the Spirit are as filthy rags. In the Hebrew, this is clearly talking about menstrual cloth. I mean, it's gross. It's saying that your attempts, as good as they are, to be righteous in your own strength are absolutely worthless and disgusting before God. We were never designed to live outside of relationship with God. Never designed that way. So, these leaders tried to feed a religious system instead of following the living God. And the irony is that the God they kept offending actually humbled himself and became the man Jesus Christ in order to save them. And they killed him. Killed him. The Spirit would expose this false righteousness. And finally... The Spirit would expose their mistaken judgment. They thought they were killing a troublemaker and a blasphemer by 
by killing Jesus. This guy was saying he was the Son of God. But when he was resurrected from the dead, Jesus was not uh, judged and found guilty. It was death that was judged and found guilty. Because the grave couldn't hold him. Amen? That is amazing. They judged him as a blasphemer and a troublemaker, a scoundrel. But because the grave could not hold our Lord, he turned judgment on its head. The evil one was judged. Death was judged. And the Spirit would convict or expose this reality to the world. And we see the Spirit working in this way. In Acts chapter 2, Peter, on the day of Pentecost, was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he simply spoke the words of truth to a crowd of people. This crowd of people stood against Jesus. They were laughing at his followers. They were saying, you guys are drunk and it's not even 12 noon yet. They were speaking in other languages. So what happens is, he tells them, hey, you guys killed Jesus. And when you did that, you killed God's anointed Savior. And God raised him from the dead, this man Jesus that you killed. And guess what? He's currently reigning over the universe. Peter simply spoke it, but it was the Spirit who convicted the audience. It was the Spirit who exposed the lie that they had been living and helped them see the truth. You see how a little twinge, maybe, of guilt can lead them to life. As a result, many were convicted that day. They were convicted of the truth and they repented and were baptized. And the scriptures say around 3,000 repented and were baptized that day. Now, not all who heard Peter's message were convinced. The Spirit exposes the truth. He doesn't coerce us into believing it. But if you're here today and have found yourself convinced that Jesus is the Savior, the Son of the living God, then you are living evidence that the Spirit continues to work to convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment. I know He does for me. It's clear in Scripture that we can't, as people, we can't even want to look for God without God drawing us to Him. I don't know about you, but that's a very comforting thought to me. That God cares enough to draw us to this place. You're not here by accident. You're not here by accident. You might think somebody dragged you here today, but you're not here by accident. Earl Palmer writes, Notice that Jesus does not use destructive language with regard to the world and its sin. He uses confrontation language. The Holy Spirit exposes and brings into focus, creatively opens up the emptiness of sin so that the world may be able to see. And then Palmer continues, Even in this choice of words, we recognize Jesus' decision to preserve the freedom of men and women to discover and see. The Spirit uncovers, opens up the truth. But it's often up to you and I to decide what to do with it. And this is where the Scripture applies to us today. If we do not see things correctly, and I would argue that few of us see things correctly all the time, 
it doesn't matter how convinced we are that we're on the right track. Because we'll just get off course and feel really passionate about it. We'll just get off track really hot. Dallas Willard, in the beginning of his, one of my favorite books, The Divine Conspiracy, writes, Recently a pilot was practicing high-speed maneuvers in a jet fighter. She turned the controls for what she thought was a steep ascent. She flew straight into the ground. She was unaware that she had been flying upside down. He continues, This is a parable of human existence in our times. Not exactly everybody is crashing, though there's enough of that. But most of us as individuals, and a world, uh, the world as a society as a whole, live at high speed. And often with no clue whether we're flying right side up or upside down. Indeed, many of us are haunted by the suspicion that there may be no difference. And maybe... You can't even tell if there's a difference. Isn't this an accurate depiction of our world? If you're a, a follower of Jesus, one of our tasks, one of the things that Jesus calls us to do is to abide in Him, to bear much fruit, to make disciples of Jesus, to teach the teachings of Jesus to others. So what good news that it's the Spirit that does the work of exposing sin and righteousness and judgment in the world. That's a huge weight lifted off of my shoulders. I don't know about you. It's the Spirit who by His grace brings twinges of guilt that tell us when we're flying upside down that can tell people to reevaluate their lifestyle and their priorities, and that takes a huge amount of pressure off of us. Most of us are somewhat leery of the word evangelism, right? It evokes images of people with signs yelling at people passing by who weren't even asking for their opinion. It strikes anxiety in many of us over fear that we won't have all the answers. We won't be able to answer all the questions of a skeptic, so I better not even try. Now, those of you who know me know that I'm all for having an informed faith. In fact, I think it's quite vital that we know why we believe what we believe. That being said, the good news here is that it's not my job or your job to convince people that they need Jesus or that they are sinful or that there's something wrong with them. That's the Spirit's job. The Spirit exposes the sin in our lives and points people to the truth. Now here's the thing. The truth is not a concept. The truth is not an idea. The truth has a face. The truth is a person. The truth is Jesus the Christ. And seeing how He's not here, but He's left His Spirit with us, your face might be the first face of Jesus somebody ever sees. Your life might be the first life of Jesus somebody ever experiences. The Spirit often chooses to use your life, your sufferings, and sometimes your triumphs, your character, to expose the world's sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Spirit convicts you and I of our sin and unbelief 
convicts me and you of our self-righteousness and our judgment that sometimes we think we know better than Jesus what's good for us, right? And it's a grace that the Spirit does this ministry because it keeps us dependent on Jesus. Helps me and you abide in the vine. Now, here are some ways to respond to this good news. First, maybe you're encouraged like me of the fact that the Spirit is at work all the time in the people in your life. Is that work in you? Is that work in the people in your house? Is that work in the people that ride the bus with you and in your workplace? Is that work in your children and your friends? Is that work in the, in the clerk at the store? The Spirit is at work. Let me encourage you, and this is something I'm doing personally. You can talk to me about this afterwards if you're interested. But let me encourage you to be more attentive, more attentive to the Spirit's work around you. What does the Spirit want you to see and know? That person that you're sitting next to, but that person you encounter, you think randomly. Are you paying attention to the nudgings and promptings of the Spirit to, to speak in a given situation or not to speak in a given situation? One way, one way to build this discipline, really, of attention to the Spirit is to keep a journal. And if you're not a journal, this is still an easy journal exercise. It's a modified form of the prayer of examine. Either you're a morning person or you're a night person, so pick one of those. And reflect on the day before. Name some of the things you were thankful for. Name some of the things you were thankful for. Maybe where you saw the Spirit working in your life. It could be the smallest thing. It could be a compliment you gave out. It could be a compliment you got from somebody else. It could be an interaction with somebody. It could be a place where you blew it. Or, ah, Spirit, what were you doing there? I wasn't even paying attention. So write down the 24 hours before and then project the next day. You look at your calendar. You say, I've got an appointment here. I'm taking the kids to school here. I'm going to work here. I'm going to ride the bus here. Just write them down on paper. It just gets it in your mind that you could encounter the Spirit working in somebody else in those places in your day. And then the next day you'll reflect on that and it goes back and forth and you'll, you'll begin to grow in attentiveness to what the Spirit is doing. It's one thing. A second way to respond to this is maybe you're here and you've not yet decided to follow Jesus. And maybe this type of message, you're thinking, I am a little bit... Exposed. I do sense the calling of Jesus on my life. And maybe that's a decision you want to make. You want to discover what it means to follow Jesus. Let me encourage you to talk to me afterwards. I'll be right here uh, after this worship gathering. And if you like, you can pray with me now as we close. Spirit of the living God, um, I so appreciate your ministry. I thank you that you don't leave me or us out there free-floating, left to the whims of what we think is right and wrong. But you constantly are shepherding us. You're constantly revealing reality. 
Spirit, you know the areas in our lives where we keep ignoring you. And frankly, where we become numb to feelings of guilt. Lord, you know those areas of sin in our lives that we don't want to feel guilt for because we want to keep doing them. And for those who want to move past that this evening, I pray by your grace that you would break through those areas of numbness. That you would bring um, fresh feeling back to those areas. And that you would give us the courage and the grace to return to you. Thank you for exposing the truth that true life can only be found in you, Jesus. And help us to trust you and to follow you. Amen.